Hey there! Welcome to September, the month where we trade our swimming trunks in for sweaters. The month where we experience a little bit of balance before the darkness starts to creep in. It's also the month we head back to work. And today's podcast is all about the state of labor. And as always, it's a collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Double Batch Daddy will be along shortly to sing a classic labor song. Ruby Farley and John Ballinger rock a little nine to five. In our Seasons of Life segment, I'll talk with four folks in what I like to call their early middle age, mid-30s to early 50s, which was once described to me as the years of peak earning potential. I'll read a story from Working, Studs Terkel's landmark oral history of laborers in the U.S., and later on, I'll share what I learned about the labor movement from my childhood paper route. So, here we are. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.37 this morning, and it sets at 6.56 this afternoon. We're just a few days away from experiencing that day of perfect balance that is the autumnal equinox, wherein the day and the night are exactly the same length. But as I look around, I'm not sure I see a world that is achieving anything like balance. We had a tropical storm in Southern California. Major hurricanes are lining up along the East Coast. The waters off the coast of Florida peaked at over 100 degrees this summer. There was a massive earthquake in Morocco and massive flooding in Libya that wiped thousands of lives off the planet. In the working world, writers and actors have been on strike since May and July, respectively, and the United Auto Workers took to the picket lines just this past week. Everything feels a little off-kilter, doesn't it? We've talked a lot on this podcast about the climate crisis and ecological imbalance, which is unfolding exactly as it was predicted it would over 50 years ago. But we haven't addressed the economic imbalance we're living through, so let's dig into that a little bit. My father worked for the state of California and was a reservist in the U.S. Coast Guard. He worked nine to five, five days a week at his office job, plus two days a month and two weeks a year for the federal government. On his salaries alone, he was able to provide a comfortable home, a couple of cars, and plenty of food for his family of five. Over the last 60 years, though, the ability to provide for a family of five on 40 hours of work each week has been decimated. Nearly every couple I know is made up of two folks who each work 40 or more hours a week, and they're still worried that it's not enough to keep up with rent and food and bills, let alone have the ability to save up for a down payment on a home. Sound familiar? If you follow the stock market even a little bit, you'll know that the corporations that make up our economy are doing better than ever. While the people who are doing the actual work that makes these corporations so successful are making less and less. When CEOs are making hundreds of times what their workers are, it creates an imbalance that needs to be corrected. Something has got to give. And workers, 
Refusing to go to work for a while is a demonstration of the value that workers have in our economy. If you don't have people building cars, you don't have cars to sell. If you don't have writers and actors creating movies and television and video games, you'll never make a penny. If Amazon drivers stopped delivering packages, if the warehouse workers stopped packing them, Amazon would have a really hard time staying in business. The fact is, organized workers have a lot of power. The labor movement achieves balance when qualified and talented workers are hired to do their jobs well at a wage that allows them to thrive. Today's podcast is dedicated to the workers who've chosen to take a stand, the folks who understand the value and the worth of the work they do. As the great Dolly Parton once said, it's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. That is, until you decide to come back to balance. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, yawn and stretch and try to come alive. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping out on the street. Traffic starts jumping to folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Some shatter just to step on the boss man's ladder, but you got dreams he'll never take away. You ain't say bo with a lot of your friends. Wait for the day your ship will come in and the tide's gonna turn and it's all gonna Yeah, they got you where they want you There's a better life
Last season, we looked at the year as if it were a day. We start in darkness. The world gets brighter until it's as bright as it can possibly be. And then it slowly grows darker again until the sun comes up on a new day. This season, we're looking at the year as if it were a lifetime. It has the same shape of birth, growth, withering, death, and new birth. It just takes a little longer. In order to explore the seasons of life, I devised a short questionnaire that touches on all the things that make us human. I ask, what's on your mind? What's your favorite food? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your favorite memory? And what do you hope for the future? We started with five-year-olds back in February, and this month, we're talking to folks right in the middle of their lives. Catherine works as a communications director in Dallas. David is a writer-director-actor who lives in Portland. James is embarking on a new career after working decades as a manager at Trader Joe's. And Maddie is my niece. She's a full-time mother of four. Here's what they're thinking and feeling in their seasons of life. I'm James, and I'm 36. David. Catherine, 49 years old. My name is Maddie, and I am 39 for a couple more months. So I have two boys and two girls. I have Logan is 10, Goldie is 5, Julia is 2, and Nathan is almost 3 months. I have a lot of medical stuff on my mind. I think my mom was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I've got a kid with allergies, and I am in charge of all of the kids. So. We have all sorts of appointments. The intersection between what I do to earn money, how, how to make money in uh, productive and helpful ways. It seems impossible uh, to me some days to figure that equation out, but that's what I think about currently. Time. Like, do I have enough time to do all the things in one day, one week? You know, being there for my son, going to school, trying to like work at the same time, just like little time carved out for myself. There's a quote that I'm going to mangle attributed to a Methodist, John Wesley, that says, do all the good you can for everyone you can, everywhere you go, every chance you get for as long as you shall live, which is aspirational for me and exhausting. My friends and I are definitely in a season of contemplating our mortality, having some scrapes, having some people pass away in recent years and figuring out each moment matters and how are we going to invest our time and what is the garbage we have to put up with and what is the stuff that is more draining than it is nourishing that needs to be let go. Ooh, that's good. I ever had my sister actually cook for me. Uh, she's, a, she's a chef, really, really good chef. And uh, she surprised me during COVID for my 33rd birthday. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was like um, steak is like wrapped up in the phyllo dough and tied off and had like octopus, uh, cold octopus with like mango ceviche and yeah, it was, it was insane. It was really cool. I felt spoiled. It was awesome. I, in college, worked at this restaurant in Pismo Beach, Steamers of Pismo. 
And I used to love their food, but they had a seafood fondue with crab, shrimp, and jack cheese and a sourdough bread bowl that I would eat almost every time I worked until my chef told me I probably shouldn't because it's not healthy to eat it every day. Well, shit, that's like asking me what my favorite song is. That's super hard. I'd have to answer the same way as if you had asked me what my favorite song is. It kind of depends. Just art of food. Uh, When I graduated from college, my folks took me to uh, a five-star restaurant in Philadelphia that's no longer there called Le Becfin, and it was the most spectacular gourmet meal I've ever seen or had. We were furiously scribbling notes after each course so we could remember it. I've also had the most amazing falafel sandwich at a bus stop in Tel Aviv. And frankly, I've had amazing meals camping in the middle of nowhere. Those are three different categories of awesomeness. Favorite meal would probably be breakfast, and it would probably be uh, migas, which is Texas-style Mexican food. You know, migas is like a scrambled eggs with maybe strips of tortilla, but not chilaquiles. It's a little different. can be served either with a fork or in a fluffy, warm flour tortilla with coffee and sunlight. The kids all spark joy. Like the yays, the boos, they're hilarious. Julia, especially the wild child is my, it's me reincarnated in a small savage and it is hilarious. Watching my son experience the world through his almost five-year-old eyes is tremendously joyous because I am sometimes transported back to that same place. When he plays with cars, for example, he does things now that I had forgotten that I did until I saw him do it. He'll put the cars up on the counter at eye level and he'll get right up to them so that as he moves the car past his head, it just seems bigger and more real in his field of vision. And I remember doing that when I was a kid and thinking my matchbox and Hot Wheels were real cars, you know? See my son grow up, it's, you know, being able to like, go play drums in a studio for a couple hours, you know, late at night, or, you know, listening to music, hanging out with my girlfriend, just just little things, little things that make a big difference. I, I like manifesting heaven as I understand it in ordinary places. I like being a connector of good people and ideas. I am loving, now that we're out of the pandemic, collective experiences, especially travel and concert going. And I like love that is not just one-to-one romantic love. And I feel like uh, concert going and, and travel have been sources of joy where I've been surrounded by and united with my fellow lovers of the places I'm going or the band that I'm listening to. And, uh, and I, I could do that every weekend and love it. Breaks my heart. Right now, the ways in which I see Americans in particular not learning the lessons of history when it comes to authoritarianism and fascism. As a Jewish man who had grandparents who lost 
every person in their immediate family to the scourge of Nazism. Uh, it is amazing to me how many clear signs are emerging now that we're possibly heading down the same path. The Alzheimer's is for sure like it's a wild ride right now. So my mom actually yesterday called me and had a cardiac event. And so far it seems small. Her testing is coming back great. But I spent yesterday with the newborn and my mom and her husband at the emergency room. And, you know, you write a note down of you're here because you had chest pain. You're at the hospital in Folsom and you've had these tests done and you need this done still just so that she can know why she's still there. So I live in Texas and I'm very sad that girls who are not old enough to vote have less bodily autonomy and fewer human rights than I did. And that trans people and queer people and families of mixed documentation status are just being used as piñatas. Loss, you know, not just of life, but of time, money, I guess, especially time, like with my son, like I'm, um, you know, separated from his mom. So I only get, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then during the summer, it's a little bit more, but, and now that he's a little bit older, like he's able to like FaceTime and then we got him like an iPad and stuff like that. So it's easier to communicate, but you know, you got to do what you do to surprise or provide and, you know, give them all you can to, to live. You know? <laughs> People not responding to me. I cannot tolerate it. I'm not talking like in a conversation. In the world of business, people who reach out to me to engage and then when I respond to them, do not take 10 seconds to get back. It makes my blood boil. Friends who uh, say, we'll uh, uh, get together and do this on a particular time. Let me, I'll talk to my, my wife, my husband, my partner. I'll get back to you and then don't. Oh my God. It makes me feel like I'm not worth five fucking seconds of your time. Fine, thanks. I'd rather you just tell me no, I can't, than not answer at all. I'm always kind of been an angry kid. You know, I like played in the hardcore band for a long time, and I listened to death metal. <laughs> so, so it can be as simple as somebody cut me off on the freeway, and I'll just like all that, all that energy and stuff that's been reserved just blows up just injustice in general you know like i think like uh like when i was younger i used to go to shows and i'd see like people beating up on like girls in the crowd and stuff like that and i'd have to like i couldn't help it out to go check them you know and like just figure out how to like make that person stop so that everybody else in the crowd can enjoy the show you know stuff like that people who make themselves feel big by making other people feel small bullying and false austerity for performative political gain school reading logs the pointless kind of bullshitty do this assignment as busy work not because it provides any real value um and it's like four points for part of my soul i don't like reading logs i'm afraid of not earning enough money in the fields of work that I love. What if it's, if I'll never make enough money using the gifts that I feel God gave me that, that just terrifies me. I think my biggest fear would be something happening to me or my kids 
I had a girlfriend recently pass um, in her early 30s of like three different types of stage four cancer with two young kids. And it was so humbling and so terrifying. I'm being afraid of failure, you know, like I'm afraid of uh, not, I guess, like leaving enough behind and like just setting up like my family and my son in school for a surgical tech, a surgical tech program. Um, so basically like the right hand assistant to the surgeon. You're not actually doing surgery, but you're anticipating like what he needs and stuff like that. Like even like with this externship, you know, I could not get a job afterwards. You know, depends on on how I do and what I do. So that that's definitely a fear of mine. Like you try to bring my best forward, but even then, it's still not a guarantee. I was lamenting. You know, hurt people hurt people. And one of my friends said, "I know that you're trying to show empathy, but I just hear a double command, (laughs) like like hurt people hurt people." The happiest day of my life by far and away was my wedding day. It was the single greatest day of, of my life for a variety of reasons. And it's not to take away from the day our son was born. That was a, that was a magical day. All of our friends and family were there. Our favorite band was our entertainment the band invited me up on stage to to jam with them. That in and of itself was already the greatest day ever. Of course, I had done that just after marrying my my wife. So the occasion, all the people that were there, the food, the drinks, the party, the music, the camaraderie. I mean, it was a spectacular and very, very funny day. I have a hard time picking one. There's lots of shenanigans but i think we grew up as like a boating family out on the lake quite a bit and water skiing across Folsom lake as a kid it was always the goal is to make it from the Folsom side all the way over to granite bay in one run and we would get a bucket of kfc and go out after school and have dinner on the ski boat and just see how long you could go i feel like i have never burned a bridge and that has uh tightly knit a safety net of connections that have stewarded me through the darkest of times and been buoys and anchors that I can uh, find and float with in the storms of life. Last summer, we house sat in Altadena for a couple of months while friends of ours were out of the country. My old KCRW boss let my husband and I house it for him in Berlin, Germany after I got laid off from a job. Um, Paul and I took a vacation this summer to Portland, Oregon to stay in the extra condo belonging to my former boss from when I was a publicist in LA. I'm a privileged person. (laughs) I am a resourceful person. I take people at their word when they say, I've got a guest room and come visit. You know, you don't have to ask me twice. If you say, we've always got a place for you, I will take you up on it. Not only like just like my son being born, but just like seeing just in those first couple months, which I'm sure like you will understand, or any parent will understand, just like seeing like the, I don't know, the development and like feeling it, like not only like their body, but like things in their mind and their eyes. And like, I don't know, it was just really excited to like see my son transition from like, you know, that's, that's his first couple months even, you know, it was, it was awesome. Cause you're learning them as much as they're learning you. 
I really hope, I think with the election year coming up, that maybe we can get to some common ground where it is not extreme. Why can't there just be a normal middle person that I feel like most of us are? I don't want to be taxed to death, but I also don't want anyone telling someone what they can or can't do with their own bodies as an adult. I just want to make enough money to like, keep traveling, keep going on adventures, you know, showing my son the world. He's really into trains. So we ride the subway all the time being in downtown. But, you know, we've also done like Amtrak to Santa Barbara, San Diego. Like, I'm just hoping to like, just take him on every train we could possibly go to in the world. At the end of my life, I'll be able to put my, my head on the pillow and be happy, so to speak, if I know that I have made a contribution to helping my son be the best human that he can be and and that maybe there's something left behind for the rest of the community that will uh, uplift and inspire and maybe even entertain them i hope that authenticity prevails over pretense that intelligence trumps gullibility that kindness beats cruelty. Beats isn't the right verb for that. I hope that kindness can transform and emerge triumphant over cruelty. I want there to be, my hope is that we can embrace abundance over scarcity, just like the strikes affecting our fellows now, that we can realize there's enough for everybody and that we are all connected and that we really need to honor one another rather than be so insulated and defensive because that short-sightedness will keep us from experiencing all of the colors and all of the opportunities and all of the, the richness and fullness that is available to all of us. Before we get back to the show, I want to take a moment to say thank you to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for following us. And thank you for the donations you've made to keep this podcast coming your way month after month. I'd originally envisioned a weekly collection of stories, songs, and conversations, but without being able to clear my schedule for 20 to 30 hours a week to prepare for that, and without the resources to pay a staff to help with the writing, editing, and coordinating, a -a once-a-month podcast became a more realistic goal. God knows, none of us are getting rich doing this, but none of us are going poor either. We're breaking even, I'd say. And that's because you took a couple of minutes to head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. You click the donate button and shared a little bit of your own gratitude with us. Thanks. Studs Terkel published Working in 1975. It's an oral history of workers in America in the late mid-20th century. The stories one of the subjects, named Hub Dillard, tells reminded me of my late grandfather, Raymond Farley, and my brother Jeff, who both made their careers working in the construction industry. My granddad helped build Oakland, California, and my brother 
has helped to construct buildings large and small all over Northern California. Grandpa Raymond worked in the field his entire career. Jeff made his way into the office, where he oversees steel manufacturing for LB Construction in Roseville, California. When we meet Hub Dillard, he is a 48-year-old crane operator living in Chicago. He is described as considerably overweight and in poor health. Here's his story. There's no job in construction which you could call an easy job. I mean, if you're out there eating dust and dirt for eight, ten hours a day, even if you're not doing anything, it's work. Just being there is. The difficulty is not in running a crane. Anyone can run it. But making it do what it's supposed to do, that's the big thing. It only comes with experience. Some people learn it quicker, and there's some people can never learn it. <laughs> what we do, you can never learn out of a book. You can never learn to run a hoist or a tower crane by reading. It's experience and common sense. There's a bit more skill to building work. This is a boom crane. It goes anywhere from 80 feet to 240 feet. You set an iron. Maybe you're picking 50, 60 ton. Maybe you have iron workers up there 100, 110 feet. You have to be real careful you don't bump one of these persons where they would be apt to fall off. At the same time, they're putting bolts in holes. If they wanted a half inch, you have to be able to give them a half inch. I mean, not an inch, not two inches. Those holes must line up exactly or they won't make their iron. And when you swing, you have to swing real smooth. You can't have your iron swinging back and forth, oscillating. If you do this, they'll refuse to work with you because their life is at stake. They're working on beams, anywhere from maybe a foot wide to maybe five or six inches. These fellas walk across there. They have to trust you. There's no trust there. They will not work with you. It has to be precision. There's been fellows that have been knocked off and hurt very seriously. There's someone careless or drinking. I had a serious accident myself. My one leg is where I don't trust to run a crane anymore with 239, 240 feet of stake. These cranes are getting bigger and bigger, so there's more tension. Now they're coming out with a hydraulic crane, cherry pickers they're called. It's so very easy to upset if you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do, and it happens, it happens so quick. A big percentage of them, the accidents, come from a habit. You're just not thinking about your work. It becomes second nature. Maybe you're thinking about something else, and right there, in that instant, something happens. The average age of the working man regular, 72. The average crane operator lives to be 55 years old. They don't live the best sort of life. There's a lot of tension We've had an awful lot of people have had heart attacks. Yeah, my buddy. There was 11 of them in an elevator downtown. They built marina towers. The company that built that elevator was supposed to be foolproof. 
If it got going so fast, it would automatically stop, which it didn't. It fell 12 floors. They were all hurt bad. Two of them had heart attacks when they was falling. There was one fella there that was completely paralyzed. He had 11 children. The only thing he could move was his eyes, that's all. It's because somebody made a mistake. A lot of stuff that comes out of the factory isn't exactly right. It's faulty. They don't know until it's used on a job. It's not just one person that's hurt. Usually four or five. A lot of times you have to take another man's word for something, and a lot of people get hurt. I was hurt because I took another man's word. I was putting a crane on a low boy, the tractor that hauls it. His foreman told me to swing this stub section of the boom from the front of the low boy to the back. I said it couldn't be done. He said it's been done a number of times. Low boy wasn't big enough for the crane, and the crane went over backward. They had some extra weight on the back of the crane, which is an unsafe practice. The crane went over backwards and threw me out. A 500-pound weight went across my leg and crushed my ankle and hip. I was in a hospital. I had three operations on my leg, was out of work 18 months. Threw me out. It was a real hot day. I said, my leg is broke. He said, no, it can't be broke. They seen me lying there. These women came over, started throwing blankets on me. I said, Jesus, as hot as it is now, you're going to smother me. An ambulance came. He started taking the shoe off. They ended cutting it off, and the bone came out. His doctor showed me everything he did. He was crushed. Wouldn't heal. He told me to go home, walk on it. I'd get outside, and I'd scream. So finally, they took me back in the hospital, operated again. There was a piece of four-inch bone never mended. He said it didn't show up on the x-ray. Coming downstairs or going down a ramp, it bothers me. We have a boat. It's an awful nice boat and awful hard for me to get in and out of it. I used to do an awful lot of hunting. I'm a farm boy. Boy, I can't do any hunting now. It was three years ago, August 22nd. Trying to feed my family and make house payments was very hard. My wife worked a little bit and we managed. The union gave us $31 a week. Workman's compensation gave us $69 a week. And after I was off for six months, I received $180 in social security. In the wintertime, sometimes you're off for several months. People will say, look at the money this man's making. But when other people are working, he's getting nothing. In the steel mill, when they get laid off, they get so much money per week for so many weeks. When I get laid off, there's nothing more than to get another job. We have no paid holidays, no paid vacations. We can't go out and get our own jobs. When we get laid off, we have to call the union hall and they send you to a job whenever it's your turn. There's so many people work for a contractor, say for 12, 15 years, these people will do anything to keep their job. They don't think of the safety of another operator of his equipment or anything. They're doing things to please the contractor. 
You have some contractors that'll try to get an operator to work below scale. Not like you used to. Majority of contractors are pretty good. Instead of asking for more money, the union should ask for better conditions. Conditions are being improved, though. Our union has a hired man. He can call a man out on a job if he thinks it was unsafe. Years ago, if you said it was unsafe, they fired you. Oh, yeah. Every union has a click. I don't care what union it is. Their own people are going to work more. I mean, their brothers and their son and such like that. And as the machinery gets more complicated, you have to learn how to read them. Somebody has to teach you. But if you're just another person and you have no pull, well, then you're not going to have an opportunity to learn it. My father was a crane operator since 1923. We lived on a farm, and he was away from home a lot. So I said I'd never do this. <laughs> when I got out of the service, I went to school and was a watchmaker. But I couldn't stay in the pack. Same thing every day and every day. It was inside and being a farm boy. Yeah, I'd, so I went to work with my father. Construction work. Stayed with it ever since. I have one son doing this work, but this youngest one, he's pretty intelligent. I'd like to see him be a professional man, if you will. Of course, I wanted the other one, too, but uh, there's so many changes now. <laughs> when I started, to build a road a mile took you two or three months. Now they can build a mile a day. Work is so much more seasonal because they can do it so much quicker. Your chances of being off work in the wintertime is a lot greater now than it was years ago. When they put up this new strip on the Dan Ryan, they had one machine there that did the work of five machines 15 years ago. It did it faster, so much better. It would take one man to do that. Fifteen years ago, it took five men, and it took all summer. They did it now in three months. I just don't know. There's a certain amount of pride. I don't care how little you did. You drive down the road, you say, I worked on this road. If there's a bridge, you say, I worked on this bridge. Or you drive by a building and you say, I worked on this building. Maybe it don't mean anything to anybody else, but there's a certain pride knowing you did your bit. That building we put up, medical building, well, that granite was imported from Canada. It's really expensive. Well, I set all this granite around there. So you do this, you don't make a scratch on it. It's food for your soul that you know you did it good. When somebody walks by this building, you can say, Well, I did that.
This month's big question, why do we work? When I was a little kid, I was constantly coming up with schemes to make a little money. I sold lemonade on the street, I mowed lawns, I washed cars, and I patiently waited for the day when I would be old enough to have a paper route. And when I finally turned 11, I scored one. It was a once-a-week paper called The Green Sheet, so named because it was printed on green newsprint. It was basically what we in the paper delivery business call a shopper. It was filled with weekly specials and coupons, and it was meant to be delivered to every single house on every single block, week in and week out. It cost 50 cents a month. These are 1975 dollars we're talking about here. I got to keep 20 cents, and the other 30 went to the publisher. Here's the thing, though. 
paying for delivery of the green sheet was purely voluntary, so I had to deliver a paper to every house on my route each week, then go back and visit each house once a month to essentially beg for the 50 cents. Of the 150 houses on my route, about a third of them chose to pay for what they would otherwise get for free. Others would politely decline, and some were adamant that I should stop littering their yard with this garbage. I quickly learned that I'd make more money for my time if I just stopped trying to collect from the folks who weren't going to pay anyway. And thus, a capitalist was born. I soon graduated to a proper paper route where folks knew that they were expected to pay each month for their paper. I had maybe 75 addresses on the route, which was about a mile from my house. Most days, I was able to stuff all 75 papers into canvas pouches that I wore over my head like a poncho. There was a pouch in the front and a pouch in the back. So as I worked my way through the contents in front, I'd slowly be choked by the contents in back. I had two extra pouches that I was able to sling over a rack on the back of my bike if the paper was hefty, and on Thursdays and Sundays when the paper was gorged with ads, I needed to make two trips. I was a dutiful and conscientious paper boy, always making sure the paper was right there on the doormat so you wouldn't even need to step out the front door to retrieve it. For a month or two, and then I got to know who the tippers were— And the capitalist in me sprung into action. Why am I going to all the extra trouble to provide a premium service to folks who aren't paying me a premium? Of course, I always tried to hit the porch from the street. But if I missed and the house wasn't a tipping house, I'd just leave the paper wherever it landed. Flower beds, bushes, the occasional roof. This caused no small amount of consternation to my parents when the phone would ring and someone on the other end would be yelling about how they didn't receive a paper. And all they needed to do was look in the third bush on the left of the front door and there it would be, duh. My sense of control over my route grew as I entered high school. I now had the coveted route that was basically just the houses on my block. Ever the capitalist, I made a deal with many of my customers to hold on to the papers I delivered and store them in paper bags, which I then went back and picked up at the end of each week, stacked in my garage, and drove to the recycling yard once a month. That netted me an extra 30 to 50 bucks, depending on the going rate for newspaper at the time. I opened a savings account. I kept a little walking-around money stuffed in a Band-Aid tin in my top drawer, which I spent on cinnamon rolls from the school cafeteria. I still dream about them to this day. Movies, ice cream from Thrifty, and the church offering plate on Sundays. The savings account grew and eventually bought me a Shogun, a gorgeous, lightweight touring bike which I rode literally everywhere, including a 300-mile tour from Guerneville out to Wrights Beach, down Highway 1, across the Golden Gate Bridge, and south down to Santa Cruz. A few years later, my savings bought me the Klipsch Heresy loudspeakers that I have in my living room to this day. All of this before I was legally allowed to apply for a job at 16. 
I learned about capitalism at an early age. I learned about the tipping economy and the sway a little cash money has on workers' performance. I also learned the power workers carry in our economy, and occasionally I flexed that power. If a household was dodging payment for their paper, I removed them from the route. When they called to complain that the paper hadn't been delivered, I told them I'd be happy to restart their subscription once they paid their bill. If a customer on my route became verbally abusive, I'd remind them that receiving a paper on their doorstep every morning was a service that I was providing that could easily be taken away. I'd remind them that paying 50 cents a day at the newsstand plus a buck on Sundays would cost them a lot more than eight bucks a month. Not to mention the time and effort it takes to walk back and forth to the supermarket. I was proud to provide a service. But I also knew that when push comes to shove, I, the worker, was in charge. My first salary negotiation in the entertainment industry came when I was 16. I was hired at KROY, the top 40 station in Sacramento. I was on the graveyard shift, 2 to 8 a.m. Sunday mornings. I DJ the drunks home from 2 to 2.40, play public affairs programming until 6.30, and DJ the folks off to church until 8. Minimum wage in 1981 was $3.35 an hour, and I'd been making that scooping ice cream at Baskin-Robbins the previous summer, so I asked for $3.50, the reasoning being that being a professional DJ ought to feel like a step up from being an ice cream scooper. The program director turned me down, and I started that Sunday at 3.35. You can't win them all. I've had more success with contract negotiations since then, and my agents, who work for me for 10% of my income, are a great help in this. Fortunately, I'm also a member of a few unions. The Screen Actors Guild, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and the Writers Guild of America. They set a minimum payment structure. They provide health care and pension benefits to their members, and they negotiate contracts on our behalf. Now, what's on the table during any particular negotiation is informed by the members of the union, the workers. We all get in a room and make our wishes known to a committee of other members who consider which proposals are good ones and which ones aren't. Eventually, with the help of a team of lawyers, we come up with a set of proposals which we present to our employers. The employers, of course, have proposals and lawyers, too. And then we hash it out. Ideally, we come to an agreement, and the final proposals are once again taken back to the membership, voted on, and, if approved by a majority of the workers, folded into the contract. It's the same process at SAG-AFTRA as it is for the United Auto Workers or the Teachers Union or the Service Employees Union. The members of the union bring their concerns to the table, management does the same, and we hash it out. Sometimes, though, there are sticking points that become impossible to resolve. At this point, management might lock workers out of a contract, or the workers might decide to go on strike. You might have heard that SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are on strike right now. It's true. And here's why. Corporate greed. 
I'm sure you've noticed that things cost a lot more today than they did three years ago. Nobody saw this coming, so the contractually agreed upon bumps in pay each year to keep up with the cost of living were low. The union's position is that in order for entertainment workers to catch up with the cost of living increases of the last three years, we need an 11% raise in the first year of the contract. Otherwise, we're effectively taking a pay cut. Nobody wants that. The mega media corporations like Disney, Warner Brothers, Apple, and Amazon think it's too much to ask for our minimums to keep up with the cost of living. Corporate greed. Another big issue has to do with the streaming model of entertainment. A TV series once employed a writer or actor to work on more than 20 episodes in a season. That number is down to 10, or 8, or even 6. The problem is that an actor or writer on a season of a Netflix TV show, for example, is by necessity bound to that show. Of course, Netflix or Apple or Amazon needs to know they can get their writers and actors back if they decide to make another season of a popular show. The problem is that the streaming pay structure doesn't allow actors and writers to survive between seasons the way it did when there was a proper residual income structure to keep actors and writers afloat during the downtimes. But the biggest threat that writers and actors face is the risk of losing our jobs completely to computers. It's getting easier and easier to create digital doubles of anyone by simply entering a photo and a snippet of their voice into a computer running the right software. Then you can make them say and do anything you want. It's also becoming easier to generate scripts using artificial intelligence, which has for years been feeding on the works of TV and film writers without compensation, of course corporate greed. The proposals from the actors around AI are the easiest to understand. To wit, my intellectual property, or IP, is my face and my voice. I license my IP to a producer with the understanding that every time they make some money selling my voice and likeness, I get a little bit of the money from that sale. To make this very simple, we actors are not against digital doubles. We just want to be in control of how our IP is used, and we want to be paid fairly for licensing this new way of using our voice and likeness. Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and Disney, and all of the other mega media corporations would rather have the freedom to create digital doubles without paying anyone a dime. Corporate greed. So, we actors and writers have effectively decided to stop delivering the paper to the mega media corps until they come to their senses and realize it's not worth the hassle or the cost of getting what they need some other way. Here's an example. If Warner Brothers were to adopt every provision of the WGA's contract proposal, it would cost them an extra $47 million a year. So far, it's estimated they've lost $500 million during the strike. I hope they're starting to understand. An unofficial motto of SAG-AFTRA is that we want to be easy to work with and hard to fight. We're putting that motto to the test right now by fighting for fair wages and safety for our performers. That's true of the WGA, too. 
I hope it's true of the auto workers and the workers at the post office. I hope Amazon drivers organize around this idea and Starbucks workers too. It's what I learned in my entrepreneurial childhood business delivering newspapers. Be easy to work with and hard to fight. If you're a good worker, and especially if you're a talented or skilled worker, now is the time to stand up and speak up for what you need in the workplace. Find other people who feel the same way you do and stand together. There's real power in numbers. There's real power in solidarity. Be proud of the work you do. Proud enough to recognize your worth. Proud enough to be treated fairly in your workplace. Proud enough to be paid fairly for the work you do. And proud enough to withhold your work until all those things are in place. And that's September. Keep up the good work. Here's the Who Did What. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy arranged and sang I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, with a special rocket ship verse by yours truly. John Ballinger arranged and performed 9 to 5 with Ruby Farley on vocals. Charles Dayton provided the soundscape for the big question, Why Do We Work?, and special thanks to Catherine, David, James, and Maddie for sharing their thoughts and feelings with us on the Seasons of Life. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. <laughs> <laughs>